Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. An X through his name, not beside it. A Colorado Republican was at the Supreme Court today as it heard the case for barring Donald Trump from her state's primary ballot. And she wasn't there to support the former president. She's a plaintiff in the case against him. Overdosed and overwhelmed, Belleville, Ontario declares an addictions emergency. A woman who runs a local drop-in centre tells us how her community is dealing with the scary reality on the ground. Going nowhere fast, Haiti's Prime Minister says he will not leave office despite the protests. An advocate there tells us the only way to end the violence and instability is to ensure Haitians and not other countries are the ones building a new political reality. Driving his point home, an Ontario mayor says he's encouraged to see Ottawa finally taking auto theft seriously because people in his city whose cars have been stolen most definitely do. You can't spell pineapple without pie, but pizza purists definitely believe you should have pie without pineapple. We'll see how people in Naples, you know, the birthplace of pizza, are responding now that the Canadian invention has finally been delivered there. And pulling out all the stops. An organ in Germany that's been playing a John Cage composition as slowly as possible finally changes chords, meaning there's only about 600 years left to go until it's finished. As it happens, the Thursday edition radio that knows the power of an extension cord. These days, each new day seems to be a new day of Donald Trump-related court proceedings, and today was especially significant as the U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments over whether the former president can be kicked off the ballot. Last year, the top court in Colorado ruled against Mr. Trump, finding him ineligible to stand in the state's primary election. The case hinges on a section of the U.S. Constitution created after the Civil War that bars insurrectionists from holding office. The group Crew, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, initiated the case on behalf of six Colorado voters who are Republicans or unaffiliated. Krista Kafer is one of them. She's a Denver Post columnist, and she was at the Supreme Court today. We reached her after the hearing in D.C. Krista, as they were listening to today's hearing, several legal experts have already said it seems the justices are are skeptical of the arguments to keep Trump off of the ballot in Colorado. Donald Trump, as you may have heard or seen, has called this a, quote, beautiful process. I know you were in the hearing room today. Do you feel like you've already lost? No, not at all. And I'm glad they asked tech questions. Uh, because if you think about it, this has not been done in over a century And it's very important that the U.S. Supreme Court apply the Constitution, but how how that looks is is difficult to figure out. And so I'm glad they asked the tough questions. Justice Elena Kagan, who is, of course, you know, part of the court's liberal wing, we can say, shared that skepticism. Let's play a little bit of what she said. I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. If you weren't from Colorado and you were from Wisconsin or you were from Michigan, and it really, you know, what the Michigan Secretary of State did is going to make the difference between, you know, whether candidate A is elected or candidate B is elected. I mean, that seems quite extraordinary, doesn't it? And Justice John Roberts on the more conservative side of the court was was saying, you know, the 14th Amendment was meant to restrict state power. So why should one state, your state, have the power to decide whether someone should be allowed on the ballot or not? Should that power not stay in the hands of voters? Each state does its own elections. Every state has laws around how it puts on elections. In fact, the U.S. Constitution under Title II gives that right to states. And so it's important that states have that prerogative. Now, what that looks like in this situation is complicated, hence the tough questions. If we prevail, it will be disruptive. 
Um, and I, I think the court was very much aware of that. But whereas if you rule for us, it will be disruptive, I believe that if they rule against us, that it will, in fact, be dangerous, not only because you're not applying the Constitution, that sets precedent, and secondly, because in not upholding our case, they would be allowing somebody who took an oath oath of office then worked to undermine that oath by attempting to overturn an election and foment insurrection, and I feel that is the more dangerous precedent. The plaintiffs in this case also include 91-year-old Norma Anderson, who served as a Republican majority leader in Colorado's Senate, as well as its House of Representatives. Colorado resident Claudine Schneider represented Rhode Island as a Republican in Congress. Why was it important to all of you to have conservatives as the face of this case? Well, as Republicans, we believe in rule of law. And, and that isn't to say that we don't, we're not the only ones that believe in the rule of law, but it's a very important thing for us as Republicans. I also think that if Democrats had done something like Donald Trump had done in fomenting insurrection, that we would want Democrats to be the first to attempt to rectify that situation. And so we are proud to be part of this effort. You've been censured by your local Republican Party for your involvement in this case. You've also said before that that you've been described as a henchman for Democrats. <laughs> that I laughs. do prefer henchwoman, though. Of course, you're right. As a henchwoman for Democrats, but <laughs> you, you clearly see the humor in those comments. But how do you respond to people, you know, in your party who tack those labels onto you? Yeah, I, I wish they would consider that if a Democrat had done what Trump had done, that they would want Democrats to act. And you cannot ask of others what you do not ask of yourself. And so I felt that this was the right thing to do. What Trump did was unconscionable. Did you vote for him both times? No, I voted for him the second time. And I, it's a decision I likened to eating out of a garbage can if one was hungry enough. It's the analogy I used in my Denver Post column. Because I didn't like him. Uh, I did like some of his policies. I felt like he had surrounded himself with some decent people and that uh, he had picked some good judges. I sort of held my nose and voted for him. But the day after the election, when he refused to concede and started to push a very dangerous lie, it was then that I thought, I will not only never vote for you again, but I will do what I can to ensure that people understand the gravity, the seriousness of the situation, that we simply cannot have people who have taken an oath to the Constitution work to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. Surely you you recognize that he had shown who he was personally, but also politically, long before the second time uh, he ran, when when you voted for him, and long before January 6th. So as you look back on that time, and I, I hear you, how you characterize making that decision, but knowing everything you knew before then and now what you know, do you regret voting for him? I mean, I, can't, I didn't know. If I know now what I didn't know before, there's a lot of things I'd probably change in my life. But I think people are making a mistake even now, perhaps the same mistake that I did, in not taking him seriously when he says things like, I'm not going to concede an election. I didn't take that seriously. I should have. And there are things that he is saying now that I think people should not dismiss as just braggadocio, but as evidence of somebody who who will attempt to subvert uh, norms and laws if he's reelected. Many people, as you know, consider the GOP to now be the party of Donald Trump. Do you see yourself staying with this party much longer? Well, you know, I've left twice and come back twice. I thought about leaving a third time. I had hoped that I guess the Trump people would leave the party, but it uh, doesn't appear to be that way. I think it may come down to creating a new party. Privacy of a person's political choice is important, certainly, but in the context of of this conversation and what you've said so far, who are you going to vote for in the next election? If it is Trump versus Biden, I'll be writing in a candidate um, or a third-party candidate. I will be voting down-ticket races because there are decent people running for other positions, but there's no way I would vote for either of them, and I hope that a third party puts forth a person of good character and policy. And if the court 
does rule in your favor? Well, then for sure we'll have somebody better. (laughs) Krista, thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Krista Kafer is a plaintiff in the Colorado case on removing Donald Trump from the ballot. We reached her in D.C. after she was at the Supreme Court today. Everyone gathered at a summit in Ottawa today agreed on one thing. Car theft is a big problem. The politicians, law enforcement officials, and industry representatives on Parliament Hill came up with a number of ideas to tackle it. More money for border services, a review of criminal penalties for thieves, and a ban on high-tech devices used to hack into vehicles. But it will still be a challenge to crack down on the organized crime groups behind the spiking number of thefts, in which car owners are sometimes attacked before their vehicles are taken abroad and resold. Here's Ontario Provincial Police Commissioner Thomas Carrick today detailing the process. Spotters will identify vehicles and they're paid between $75 and $100 for their role in all this. The thieves between $3,000 and $20,000 depending on the vehicle for which they successfully steal. Those vehicles are then put in a spot to cool off before a runner will run that vehicle primarily to the Port of Montreal, in some cases to rail yards in the greater Toronto area, and most concerning for us is the traffic along the 401, which puts officers and public at risk when these vehicles do not stop. And it results in a suspect apprehension pursuit, which was the opening photograph you saw in my presentation where the offender actually died in the collision. These vehicles then make their way to the Port of Montreal and the profits are between 60 and $80,000 estimated per container and then are sold overseas and can sell for more than double of their value. OPP Commissioner Thomas Carrick. Patrick Brown is the mayor of Brampton, Ontario. We reached him in Ottawa. Mayor Brown, that is how these operations, these thefts are unfolding. What are people in Brampton telling you about what is happening to them? This is, this is the number one complaint we're getting. I, I see almost on a daily basis videos of cars being stolen, but it's got more brazen, uh, more uh, horrifying. You know, a few years ago, it was cars being stolen in the middle of the night. Now we're seeing doors knocked in. We're seeing violent carjackings. The number of auto thefts across this Toronto to Montreal corridor has absolutely skyrocketed, and it's fueling uh, organized crime. It's, it's why I thought this summit today was so important. Do you know anyone personally who's been targeted, who's had their car if, stolen? If you live in the GTA, everyone knows someone who's had their car stolen. I, I, I will hear examples of people who have had their car stolen almost on a, on a daily basis. In Canada, as we know, a car is stolen every five minutes. I had one member of my city council who had, who had his car stolen twice. It's not rare to hear about a car being stolen. You were on our program just almost exactly a year ago, actually, about this issue. You were giving people their bags, special bags to try to block criminals from reading their car key fobs. You admitted at the time that it was a temporary Band-Aid kind of solution and you wanted to see something tangible from Ottawa. You said said a moment ago that this summit was a good thing in your view. I also heard you say today that this is the first time uh, a minister in this position has been listening. So are you ultimately satisfied that, that what happened today, what was discussed today, is going to stop those thefts on your streets? Well, I think for the first time, I'm, I'm optimistic. The new public safety minister, Dominic Blanc, appears to be very engaged. You know, previously, when I met with public safety ministers, they said this is a local issue or a provincial issue. And they were wrong. We were doing everything possible, you know, whether it's Faraday bags or hiring record number of new officers, doubling the size of our auto theft unit. But to solve this, you know, we need to have proper screening at our ports and in our motor hubs where police don't have jurisdiction. And, and that's where all the traffic of stolen cars is, is happening. And so when I heard the minister say he's going to invest in screening technology in the intermodal hubs and at the ports, uh, it's a sign that help is on, on the way. This is expensive technology. It's about $3.5 million per scanner. 
But if we get this into the intermodal hubs and the ports, it will suffocate um, the auto theft industry. Uh, it will be a tremendous win for public safety. The question now is how quickly they can do this. You know, this fund is supposed to be over three years, and it wouldn't be enough to cover the whole country, but it would be enough to sort of target this Toronto-Montreal corridor. Mm-hmm. So if they focus on where the thefts are happening, then the help announced today will make an impact. So screening is key for you. You've also talked about sentencing. Why are those two the most important things, do you think, to to ending these kinds of thefts? Well, you know, the Minister of Justice spoke about uh, additional uh, consequences for, for sentencing. That is important. What we're seeing in Peel Region, I know it's, it's similar across Ontario, is they're very short sentences. And so what you'll see quite often is someone will spend a night in jail and then they'll be out. And the gangs will even pay the individuals who spend a night in jail a bonus if they have to spend a night in jail. I think what complicates this more is that these gangs are largely preying on young offenders. And so, you know, you have young offenders doing the uh, initial theft. So I, I know this is complicated, but, you know, we're hearing very positive signals from the Justice Minister. He's looking at ways to change the dynamic. Right now, if you commit a gun crime or a drug offense, there are serious consequences. That's not the case for auto thefts. And so it means it's um, low risk and high reward. And we, and we need to rebalance that. Our CBC News colleague Thomas Dagg did a story last month you may have seen about a man whose car was stolen. He tracked it using the air tags he put in it because he'd had a car stolen before all the way to the UAE. But one of the things that came up in that story is that even when people know where their car is and that it's been stolen, they're talking to police and they're not getting any help. So I saw that article um, as well. And what I'd say is that is the reality. We are seeing... Uh, cars stolen in plain sight. And it's one of the issues that I raised today at, at the summit. Our police do not have jurisdiction. And so if we see a car in a shipping container and we've got the tracking device that shows exactly where it is, the police cannot get to that shipping container unless they have a warrant. Uh, by the time they have a, a warrant, it's already gone. And you know they're told initially, wait for CBSA to arrive. But CBSA doesn't have the staffing or the resources to arrive. I've literally seen a mountain of shipping containers at the intermodal hub in Brampton that have been flagged for stolen cars, and there's no CBSA officer available to come. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev, uh, as you have likely heard, has blamed the Liberal government for, for this problem, saying that, that they have not done enough to deter thieves, that they've been soft on crime, soft on this issue. You you were commending the minister, Dominique Leblanc, today. What do you make of Pierre Polyev's comments? Do you agree? So for me, it's not about partisan politics. This is a public safety issue. And if the government is going to come to solutions, if they're going to fund these uh, screening devices that the police have asked for, if they're going to make the right investments, I'm going to applaud that. I, mean, I don't believe in criticism just because it's it's one party making that announcement. Frankly, that's not helpful. I'm more interested in, in, in helping solve this problem. I would say, you know, for the last five years in Ottawa, the government nor the opposition talked about this. Now that they're all of a sudden they've woken up to it and they're talking about it, great. I welcome it. Should it have happened years ago? Of course. But they're actually at the table now. And for me, that's very encouraging. How long do you think, Mayor Brown, before people in Brampton who've experienced these kinds of thefts and elsewhere have some peace of mind? I think as soon as the government's able to procure you know, these machines, we probably need three or four of them in the Port of Montreal probably one at each of the intermodal hubs in the, in the GTA. So as soon as they arrive and they're staffed, that will be a game changer and that will really damage uh, the international crime organizations that are, are, are flourishing upon us. I, I'd love to see that they could get this up and running in a few months, but I know the pace of government moves slowly. Mayor Brown, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Patrick Brown is the mayor of Brampton, Ontario. He's in Ottawa today for the National Summit on Auto Theft. In isolation, what you're about to hear doesn't sound very exciting. It doesn't seem very dramatic, and it definitely isn't fast. In fact, it was extremely slow, but that is the point. (laughs) 
The sound of an organ at a church in Germany on Monday changing chords for the first time in two years. It is part of one of the longest, slowest musical compositions in existence. When I say long, I mean it's scheduled to last another 600 plus years, if all goes well. It's by the late avant-garde composer John Cage, and it is aptly called As Slow As Possible. A group in Germany has taken that name literally. Since 2001, the composition has only had 16 chord changes. Rainer Neugebauer is a member of the John Cage Organ Foundation. We reached him in Halberstadt, Germany. Reiner, after all of that time, all of that anticipation, it, it could have been disappointing. How did it sound? Oh, it uh, sounds uh, a little bit fuller uh, and a little bit, uh, sometimes a little bit warmer. Yes, it was a very magic moment for me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the organ because it, it, someone is not sitting there, <laughs> obviously, for decades uh, holding holding uh, the sound there, holding the chord. So what, how yes. does it work? Uh, uh, this is not a, a, a full organ, yes, mm -hmm. because we have no money. <laughs> it's a, a, a little uh, wooden uh, instrument, yes, with only three uh, keys or three pedals, yes. Mm -hmm. By an organ, it's uh, very simple. Uh, the longer the pipe, uh, the deeper uh, dester, uh, the, the, the tone is deep, yes? And the high pipes are very small, very short. Just to be clear, are you using sandbags? Yes. Okay. We have uh, the three, on the three uh, uh, keys, yes, it's, uh, they, they, they look, look a little bit like uh, very old uh, keys in, in, in England. The people say pedals, mm -hmm. yes. Something like a, a wooden spoon in the kitchen, <laughs> yes, and um, and there are the sandbags, and in the sandbags is one of the little stones there on the ground of the church, yes. The title, as slow as possible, ASLSP, yes. it, it's very much open to interpretation. So why interpret it so literally? Yes, it's. Uh, uh, first, uh, you must know that this piece was uh, written for uh, piano mm -hmm. and is called only ASLSP. And this was for a piano competition, for a semi-final in a very famous uh, piano competition. And it uh, shall be uh, uh, least only five or, t five or ten minutes. <laughs> Mm. But Cage was not a friend of competitions, so first he said, oh, ASLSP means for me at first as slow as possible. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, it's a reference to the last chapter of uh, Finnegan's Wake, the uh, second um, novel from mm -hmm. James Joyce. Uh, literary historians and literary uh, theorists uh, uh, inter interpreted as uh, something like uh, uh, soft uh, in the morning. <laughs> so it's contradictory. Yeah? On the one hand, as slow as possible, it's mm -hmm. very, very long. And on the other hand, uh, soft. <laughs> <laughs> so this yeah. officially started in 2001. But there yes. was no sound until 2003. No, there was a sound. Was there? But it was no sound by pipes. It was only the sound of the bellows. <laughs> and this is for Cage. It's also sound. For Cage, all things sounded, uh, and he make no difference between noise and sound, yes? On the one hand, uh, um, he wanted uh, uh, that we... Here knew the sound, yeah, with open eyes and empty mind. He's, and the second is, he wants uh, that we, uh, or he wants to free sounds, free sounds from interpretation, from meaning, from intention, from uh, hierarchies, yes, good sounds or bad sounds or something like this. Don't ask what does it mean. It means nothing. It's only sound and you can enjoy it. So the next date for, for fans to mark on their calendar is the 5th of August, 2026. But ultimately, this project is supposed to run until 2640, 616 years from now. Do you think it's actually going to last that long, that people will keep this going? Oh, uh, uh, 
I don't know it, yes. And uh, there are uh, many things in the world uh, who make me not sure that it will be uh, going uh, until 2640. Sometimes like uh, climate change, sometimes like uh, a war, sometimes like right-wing parties who are against uh, foreign music, music who came from outside in, in Germany, yes, from America and something like this. Uh, maybe it's t uh, too hot there or too wet. Uh, mm, uh, the roof of our church was uh, mm, had uh, get uh, four times in the last 20 years big holes in it, yes, because there was a stormy weather. But on the other hand, uh, I think uh, in the year 2620, there are the people, uh, they have 20 years to the end of our project, to the end when it works like we are planned it, yes? Mm -hmm. right? And uh, maybe they say, oh, that's not as slow as possible. We can do it a little bit slower, or we can do it uh, one more repetition, or something like that. Um, I don't know it. I'm, I'm open for it, and I, and I hope I will uh, recognize something of this in the year 2640. <laughs> <laughs> Reiner, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Reiner Neugebauer is a member of the John Cage Organ Foundation. He's in Halberstadt, Germany. It has been hard to keep quiet this long. Honestly, we kind of hoped the controversy would just blow over and we could just sit this one out. But the, the truth is, when you're the arbiter of all things pineapple pizza, the people count on you in moments like this. A few weeks ago, one brave, some might say foolhardy, Neapolitan pizza maker decided to add the forbidden tropical fruit to one of his pies. As he told our colleague and occasional guest host, Megan Williams, quote, pineapple pizza has been a revelation for me. Mostly what I'd heard was, it was terrible, unquote. Well, many Italians do think terrible is a good word to describe the new pie, but to be clear, this is not anything like the frozen Hawaiian pizzas in the as-it-happens freezer, stacked in that freezer. This version of the controversial pie features three kinds of smoked cheeses and sliced rounds of pineapple, twice baked to produce a hint of burnt sugar. It's drizzled with olive oil, topped with basil leaves, and a few cracks of black pepper. That kind of sounds molto bene to us, but we might be a bit biased because like the Italians, our national pride is on the line again. From our archives, here's Canadian pineapple pizza inventor Sam Panopoulos speaking with guest host Helen Mann after Iceland's president, Gudni Johannesson, said he would ban pineapple as a pizza topping. When I was working on a pizza, on pineapple pizza, he wasn't even born. And uh, <laughs> there was no pattern, no place, nobody owned it. Nobody owns the name or anything like this. How can it be legal? Well, I mean, he's the president of Iceland. I guess he has, uh, you know, some power. Well, he can have whatever he wants. I don't care. You haven't got a patent on the uh, no, pineapple? No. I wish I had. Yeah, because it's kind of a big deal, right? Yeah, those days when I, when I first got up and come up with it, there was nothing to it, you know what I mean? With just another uh, piece of bread uh, cooking on the oven. <laughs> Along the way... We threw some pineapples on it, and uh, nobody liked it at first, you know, but after that they went crazy about it. Mm -hmm. Because those days uh, nobody was mixing uh, sweet and sour and all this. You were a pioneer. Yeah, well, yeah. Anyway, after that, it, it stays. We sell pizzas in Chatham and uh, in London for uh, well, the next 40, 45 years. From 2017, the late Sam Panopoulos, speaking with guest host Helen Mann. Mr. Panopoulos is credited as the first person to put pineapple on pizza at his restaurant in Chatham, Ontario, in the 1960s. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. 
We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Today, the mayor of Belleville, Ontario, declared an addiction, mental health, and homelessness emergency under provincial law. As we told you on the program last night, the eastern Ontario city is reeling after emergency responders received 14 overdose calls in the span of a few hours on Tuesday afternoon. This morning, Mayor Neil Ellis said the community doesn't have the resources needed to deal with the crisis and called for help from the provincial and federal governments. We need more mental health counseling, we need more doctors, uh, nurse practitioners, and so the human capital invested in this. We look at detox centers, uh, we don't have any uh, capital or any facilities that, that we can turn to. So basically on uh, any type of overdose, uh, they are admitted to the hospital and, and put back out on the streets. That was Neil Ellis, the mayor of Belleville, Ontario, speaking earlier today. Sheila Bradek is the co-chair of the Bridge Integrated Care Hub. It's a drop-in centre that operates in the Bridge Street United Church. Several of its clients were affected by the suspected drug poisonings. We reached Ms. Bradek in Belleville. Sheila, Mayor Ellis also said it feels like Belleville is close to a breaking point. Does it feel that way to you? Um, yeah, Belleville and many other communities in uh, Ontario and across Canada, actually, I think, are experiencing a bit of an overwhelming impact of the drug poisoning crisis and uh, struggling to to respond. How are you and everyone there, you know, coping with what has happened? It is certainly staggering to read about and imagine in our mind's eye all of these people uh, overdosing in such a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is upsetting. It's scary. Uh, it is overwhelming. And and fundamentally, it's tragic and sad. Was it also unexpected? Well, unexpected in that, you know, we don't know when there's going to be a bad bit of drugs coming through in the community. Uh, not unexpected in that it's going to happen. We've had um, times in the past where we've had a number of overdoses and other communities as well, not just Belleville, have yeah, those sure. waves of, of uh, toxic uh, drugs that come through. And, uh, you know, just fortunately, we didn't have any deaths mm-hmm. associated with this last round. But, uh, yeah, it, it's an ongoing concern. Um, and it's something that as a, as a community, we, we have to find a way to address. It is certainly not just Belleville. And we've, we've covered um, situations with overdoses uh, and the opioid crisis and, and similar mm-hmm. stories across the country uh, as well. In this case, have you heard anything further on the investigation, trying to find out the source of these tainted drugs, both you know where they came from, but what exactly was in them? Yeah, no, I'm not. Uh, I'm not knowledgeable. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I don't don't know what's going on there. I'm. I am aware that elsewhere in Ontario, we've had different uh, veterinary related tranquilizers that have shown up in the drug supply, and most recently, there's been another variety that's shown up uh, in some communities. It's certainly in you know consistent with how people are responding to the medications and how naloxone alone, you know, only deals with the opiates. It doesn't deal with some of the other uh, drugs that are being mixed in there, which is part of the problem in that we don't know what is showing up in the drugs and therefore what sort of a response is appropriate. The drug composition changes over time. We need to be able to respond over time and to have adequate resources. This emergency declaration is a request to higher levels of government to step in and help specifically what mm-hmm. help would you like to see that you need oh i it's it's a range of things and and i think there is no no one thing that is going to turn the tide i think it's a combination of uh, addiction medicine there's overdose prevention supports that are required uh, i think looking at a safe supply of of medications or opioids might be uh, worthwhile contemplating. I know it's worked in other locations. I think we've talked here about, you know, there's, there is no local detox facility, you know, and, and I think certainly uh, enforcement and control uh, is an issue in terms of being able to 
to pursue where the supply is coming from, right? Also, uh, those strategies, I think, need to be introduced Mm -hmm. using a really thoughtful, evidence-informed approach. We know there's a lot of stigma associated with substance use, and I think addressing that stigma directly, I think, is one of the things that we also need to deal with. You're hinting at um, this in, in in what you say there, uh, it, it sounds like, but just to let our listeners know, Bay of Quinty MPP Todd Smith has said the province has invested, quote, tens, potentially hundreds of millions of dollars, end quote, in recent years for addictions and mental health supports but says these Mm -hmm. problems keep coming up. So from where you sit, is this something that can be addressed solely with money? Oh, of course not. Of course not. It requires people. It requires ideas. It requires creativity. It requires commitment. It requires passion um, and and belief in the value of every human life. It requires a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Money is a part of it. I appreciate uh, MPP Smith's investments and uh, the provincial government's investments over the years. What's true, though, is that we're, you know, our situation is not static. We know that there's been a historic underinvestment in mental health and addictions in Canada for a number of years, right? And, And the investments that are going on now are very much appreciated and have been starting to redress some of that historic underinvestment. Um, But we're not there yet. And this is a whole new thing that we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Is, uh, we've seen other communities offer voluntary drug testing, you know, to to prevent situations like this when there are, the supply they know is is tainted. Is that something that you're considering Mm -hmm. there in Belleville? And do you think people in Belleville would would be open to that? Yeah, I think voluntary drug testing is is a, a useful strategy. It doesn't prevent this sort of thing. It does give people information when they're using. Um, so, yeah, I imagine that that'll be one of the things that we're talking about over the next few days as we develop a, a strategy, a community strategy on how to respond and uh, what might be required. How are your staff and the people who use the centre, how, how are they dealing with things today? What I know is is that people are heartbroken, right? That people are um, scared for themselves and uh, for the clients that we're working with. And, you know, um, mothers who have lost kids to overdose are scared for other people that are using and angry. Sheila, thank you. Thanks, Neil. Sheila Bradek is the co-chair of the Bridge Integrated Care Hub and the executive director of the Belleville Quinty West Community Health Centre. She's in Belleville, Ontario. It's been one year since a city bus crashed into a daycare in Laval, Quebec, killing two children aged four and five and injuring six others. The driver of that bus faces nine charges, including two counts of first-degree murder. Today, families and the daycare marked the anniversary. There was also a gathering at a local park where two white balloons were released. André Baudouin was unbuckling his son's seatbelt when the crash took place. He helped pull children from under the bus that morning. He spoke to reporters after today's event. It was hard. Um, it was uh, it was a sad day, but it was good to see all the families and all the the people that were with. Uh, actually, there were people I didn't even know their names and their faces. There were people that helped that morning. I had no idea who they were. I'm just glad that I saw those people. And like I said, trying to do a full circle. There's still lots of things that we don't know, but the trial's coming soon, and I'm hoping uh, there's going to be stuff that we're going to learn that you know we don't know about. And yeah. Yeah, my daughter wanted to be here this morning, but uh, I told her uh, school's important, so I told her, go to school today and do your stuff. And, you know. How old are your kids? Uh, my daughter's 14 and my son's three, just turned three. How do you explain that to them, what happened? Uh, my son's three, so he has no idea what's going on. My daughter is just, she, she keeps telling me I'm a hero, but 
So that's it something you think of. You know, you just try to do your best, you know. Um, just try to help the most as I could, you know. Get the kids out from under the bus safely and just try and help out everybody. Yeah. You were singing French uh, at 8.30 in the morning yeah. on this day. Yeah. It's, it's something that, that, that gets you inside. Oh, yeah. Even yesterday. All day I kept thinking about today at 8.30. So, like I said, it was the hardest day of my life that day. And it's always going to stay in your head. Just glad that the other children are all good and, you know, they're safe and they, they won't have any physical uh, damage to them. So it's it's good. You know. how, do you, how do you make sense of what happened that day? Oh, uh, you can't. <laughs> you have... You have... It's, it's just crazy. You know, it's... It's just a crazy day, man. Something you wish you never saw or been there like I said, I was there for a reason that day, and you know, I, I did what I had to do, and we were all there for a reason that day. That's it. And then just trying to think of positive thing for for the future. That's what I've been trying to do uh, since it happened. Even at the daycare, I do it there every day. Give the big smile. I say, I stop in every class. I go inside the door. I say hi to everybody. You know, I'm not shy. I open the door. I say hi to everybody. Just love. You know, try to give more love to everybody. That's all we need. That was Andre Baudouin speaking to reporters today. Mr. Baudouin witnessed the crash at a Laval daycare one year ago that left two children dead. Yesterday, Haitians were supposed to head to the polls, but instead they took to the streets. As they marched and barricaded streets, demonstrators called for Prime Minister Ariel Henry to step down. Five people were killed by police, who also fired tear gas. In late 2022, Mr. Henry promised to hold elections by February 7th of this year. In a late-night address, however, he said the elections would now be held as soon as Haiti's insecurity issues are resolved. Monique Kleska is a human rights advocate and a member of the Commission to Search for a Haitian Solution to the Crisis. We reached her in Port-au-Prince. Monique, what was the capital like today? The capital was somewhat quieter than yesterday. Mm -hmm. People cannot really stay away from their occupation mm -hmm. for more than one or two days. So really the last two weeks, there have been a lot of protests essentially asking for Ariel Henry to leave uh, the power. And uh, he has not listened because yesterday he went on TV mm -hmm. and they pretty much said he's staying. And when elections will happen, when there is security and when will there be security? Well, he does not say he has no plan. You posted uh, on social media a, a caricature from the news outlet uh, Juno 7, and it shows a caricature of Ariel Henry salivating with a key. He looks like he's about to swallow it. He's standing next to a throne that has a chain around it and a padlock, and that lock says USA. So tell our listeners if you think that there's, there's any chance Ariel Henry, if not today, is going to step down or try a new approach. Well, I don't think there is any new approach. I, I think in his toolbox, he has repression. In his toolbox, he has corruption. In his toolbox, Ariel Henry lies when he says that he will talk to people because the last few times that he has been at the table pre-negotiation, he has said the same thing. He does not want to share a, any power. But the Haitian people are saying they do not want him. It has been 30 months that he has been in power. It has been catastrophic. If or when Ariel Henry steps down, as you said, it's going to happen eventually in your view. What should happen next? Because you've been working for, for quite some time. You were instrumental in the, in the creation of the Montana Accord, uh, which was supposed to be a two-year transitional plan that never came to be. So what would happen in your dream scenario? Well, to me, it is a dream scenario, but it is based on reality. 
because we worked on it. There are about a thousand signatories to the Montana Accord. And we recently presented a mechanism for a transition. So to us, it is a transition to break from the system that Ariellery represents. To us, it means a change in governance, a governance that does not have corruption at its core. And obviously, we will need some help. Our economy has been in freefall in the last four years. It has been negative growth. So obviously, we're going to need help, financial, mm -hmm technical, and eventually manpower. But it has to be on our terms. This cannot be decided in Ottawa or at the Quai d'Orsay or in the State Department or at the Pentagon. It has to be decided in Port-au-Prince, in Haiti. So that is important. There is a massive also humanitarian situation mm -hmm. in Haiti. There are close to about four, four million Haitians who go to bed hungry. That is a dire emergency. And there are close to 300,000 people who are displaced by the gangs. How will they go back home? Can they go back home? So things have to be done. There has to be action. We've covered a lot of a lot of what you're talking about, a lot of the concerns and concerns about outside intervention or outside help. We had a guest on recently as well who said the U.S. in particular has to stop picking the winners and the losers. When you when you say that you would be willing to accept some help, you know, on Haitians' own terms, what do you think that would entail? You know, if, if Canadians are listening, Canadian ministers, Canadian politicians, what do you want them to hear about what help would actually be helpful? I want them to come down to Port-au-Prince and sit down and talk to us. That's the first thing. Secondly, particularly, for example, with the Canadians who have led uh, the partners in Haiti in a lot of years in terms of sexual violence, women's bodies have become weapons of war in this war of Haitians against Haitians. And so the Canadians can actually help in terms of that, providing support, as they have done in the past, but massive support will be needed because there have been a lot of collective rapes. Maybe an international tribunal will be necessary also. So these are the kinds of things that we need, but we need to decide. So I think it is important to come down to our reality and sit and talk to us. We Haitians need to find our own solutions, and it is not solutions that have a little pepper here from Canada, mm -hmm. a little salt here from France, or a little ketchup from the United States. No, no, absolutely not. You've been in this fight for decades. You were raised there, you're from there, you live in Haiti now, and I hear the fight very clearly in your voice still. Being so involved in this, but seeing what's happened over the last two and a half years in particular, how do you keep that, that fight? Listen, we have about 64 to 65 percent of Haitians who are under 24 years old. So we have a young nation and they need massive investments in health, in education. And I have spent most of my professional life working for a human rights. It has always been at the center of my life and at the center of my struggle. And feminism has always been also at the center of that fight. So that is the aspiration and that is what makes the struggle worthy. These are people we are talking about. So it is about trying to make sure that Haitians, particularly Haitian youth, have a future in Haiti. Thank you, Monique, for your time. Thank you, Nell. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Monique Kleska is a former UN official and a member of the Commission to Search for a Haitian Solution to the Crisis. We reached her in Port-au-Prince.
Most Canadian basketball players grow up rooting for the Toronto Raptors, and they probably dream of playing for the Raptors one day too. That's true for NBA player Kelly Olynyk, and his connection with the team goes even deeper. His parents worked for the Raptors when the franchise first started more than 20 years ago. Over the course of his career, Mr. Olynyk has played for some of the best teams in the NBA. Now he's finally fulfilling his childhood dream, and his parents are pretty stoked about it. Arlene and Ken Olenek spoke to the CBC's Sarah Penton about Kelly's move to the Raptors. It was surreal when he was drafted, and it was surreal when he hit his 10-year mark, and now to play for a team that he grew up watching is like, again, it's another pinch-me moment. Not even grew up watching, but Arlene, you and I have talked before, and I remember you telling me, because you were the first female scorekeeper for the Raptors, such a cool yeah. connection. I mean, he was with the team, around the team growing up, right? And around yeah. that facility, absolutely. And Ken was um, a guest coach for a year. Yeah, so Ken, what's that like for you to have these this full circle moment? Well, it's kind of cool, you know. I think that especially with, you know, we were in Toronto when the Raptors were established in Toronto. So I think it's kind of cool that, uh, you know, he's headed back there and obviously we get a chance to visit him. How did you guys find out? Oh, he called us. Kelly called us uh, this morning. Yeah, he called us. And then, then after we got off the phone with him, our phones blew up going, is this real? And then, you know, all those fun memes where you have shock faces or yeah, like, and his friends who have been, you know, even in Kamloops, the Raptors stretch across the country and who have been diehard Raptor fans are like literally dancing that he is back, you know, and, and they're going, can't wait to get a, a jersey with Olenek on the back. And this is like literally the two worlds. Like some people follow Kelly because they're friends of Kelly's. And then a lot of people follow the Raptors because they're our team. And, and now for the you know, it's the Reese's Pieces moment. You know, you're putting peanut butter and chocolate together. It's fantastic. Have you guys envisioned what that's going to be like to be there back at the state at the arena and to, to watch your baby boy walk out <laughs> onto that court that first time as a Raptor? You know what? Now that you say it, like, you know, first you're going, okay, do you need help packing? Do you need this? I guess. And so, yeah, you're, you're looking through the administration part of, of having to move across the country. But, um, yeah, that will be, seeing his name on the back of a Raptors jersey will be the stomach flip moment. Arlene and Ken Olinick speaking to Sarah Penton on All Points West today. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.